The American History Podcast, Season 3, Episode 10, Urbanization and Immigration in the 19th Century, Part 2. Welcome to the American History Podcast. Hosted by Sean Morswick. All right, welcome back. Season 3 continues to roll right along, um, but before we get started, let me thank you for coming along for the ride. Please visit the website at www.theamericanhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can sign up for our email list, and um, you can find some of the sources that I've used to create this season. There's uh, links there to Amazon, so if you'd like to purchase one of the books, you can just click on the book, and boom, you're ready to order it. Doing so will send a few pennies our way, so let me thank you th for that right now. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so, again, shopping on Amazon through those links on our site. You don't have to purchase the book or the item that you click on. Just as long as you enter Amazon through our website, we'll get some of Uncle Jeff Bezos's um, cash. And so, again, thank you for that. Another way to support the show is to sign up for our Patreon site. If you do so at the $5 a month level, you get access to the show ahead of time, as well as to the bonus show 1983, The Year the World Almost Ended, and coming sometime in July, a special anniversary show. So head over there and sign up for it right now. Speaking of Patreon, we have a new member. So I'd like to give a shout out to our newest members, actually. Um, first, we have Jeremy Prue. Thank you for contributing. Now, Jeremy has signed up at the $5 a month level, so he'll get access to pretty much everything we do. Our next new member is David, who signed up at the $3 level. Uh, David, thank you very much for that. And I do appreciate both you and all of the folks who have signed up for our Patreon. You guys are really helping me to, to keep this thing going. So thank you very much. Okay, this week, our song of the week is Mark Maple Leaf Rag. So as usual, I'll see you on the other side. So the last time we left off uh, talking with immigration, now one group um, that I only just touched upon was Chinese immigration. So let's talk about that subject now. There were three major waves of Chinese immigration into the United States in American history starting in the 19th century. But the one um, that we are concerned with is the first wave. But let's briefly mention that there was a second wave, which was generally from, the 19, from 1949 through the 1980s, and then a third wave from the 1980s through today. Now, while there were a few Chinese living in California before 1848, it's really the gold rush in 1849 caused a major increase in numbers. 
323 Chinese immigrated to the United States in 1849, 450 in 1850, but then 20,000 in 1852 as news of gold in California spread. Sadly, from the very beginning, Chinese immigrants faced distrust and racism from the settled Europeans. Now, having said that, um, the Burlingame Treaty in 1868 allowed unrestricted Chinese immigration or unrestricted immigration from China. Now, the reason, well, labor for the Transcontinental Railroad. However, in addition to that, Secretary of State William Seward hoped to open Chinese markets to goods from the United States. Thus, by 1870, the Chinese accounted for about 10% of the population in California, or about 75,000 total. Now, as I mentioned last time, Chinese immigrants came into the United States, for the most part, via Angel Island in San Francisco. That was the main processing center for immigrants coming in from China. Uh, when one thinks of immigration to the United States, one often thinks of the East Coast of the U.S. and the Statue of Liberty and all that. Um, of course, at this point, the statue didn't, statue didn't exist, but... Even when it did exist, there were lots of immigrants uh, who came in via ports other than New York. So let's talk about the Chinese in America. Now, they worked as miners as well as on the railroad. And as I mentioned last time, some immigrants did not stay. Actually, Chinese immigrants represented the highest percentage of any immigrant group in the United States who returned home. I would expect this was due to the difficulty of assimilating into the culture here. Further, China, uh, Chinatowns grew up in places like San Francisco and were made up of, at that point, mostly single men. Few Chinese women came to the United States early on, and those who did often were either turned into or had to turn to prostitution. Furthermore, um, the men who did come ended up working in San Francisco as cooks, laundrymen, or domestic servants. And let us not forget the Transcontinental Railroad. Once the railroad was completed, however, Chinese immigration um, caused anger amongst white workers in California, especially the Irish in San Francisco. Now, some historians point to three reasons for all this. First, the economy was not in the best of shape. This was due to the hangover from the Civil War. The second problem was that the Chinese workers, um, willing to work less for less than the average person, were used as a hedge against unionization. The result was that Chinese people were terrorized in the streets of San Francisco, with many being either beaten or killed. You also had Chinese persecution, or Chinese persecuted, in mining towns and other areas of the West, such as Colorado and Wyoming. And this wasn't all just unorganized violence and hatred. The Working Men's Party of California, led by Dennis Kearney, called for the exclusion of Chinese from California and the United States overall. Now, it was an influential party, that earlier on had helped draft the California Constitution in the late 1840s. It accused the Chinese of taking jobs from American workers. Sound familiar? The California Constitution denied Chinese jobs on public works projects and stated that they could um, not work for companies in the state. Finally, all of this anger towards Chinese immigration culminated with the passage of the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, which ended legal Chinese immigration to the United States until 1943. Now, notice I said legal Chinese immigration. You should realize that doesn't mean there was no immigration from China. Illegal immigrants often came in through the Pacific Northwest. And remember, there was no border police force in existence up until 1924. Okay, so let's discuss the reaction to the new immigration. First, political machines catered to the new immigrants. Machine bosses often traded jobs and services for votes, which meant they created powerful voting blocks, which were then used for their own purposes. Secondly, machines provided employment 
on the city's payroll, founded house, uh, found housing for newly arrived immigrants, provided gifts of food and clothing for the needy. Um, they helped with legal counseling and helped to get schools, parks, and hospitals built in immigrant neighborhoods. The most famous example of a political machine in the United States was Tammany Hall. It fueled much of its power through the use of immig the immigrant vote. But other major cities, such as Boston, Chicago, Philadelphia, St. Louis, Cleveland, and Kansas City, also developed potent political machines. A second reaction can be found amongst the social crusaders who attempted to improve the horrible conditions in the cities. They were, in many cases, motivated by the belief, or perhaps the fear, of violent revolution amongst the working class. It was out of this that the social gospel movement emerged. So what did these people want? They advocated the idea that the Christians should work to improve life on earth for those who were less fortunate, rather than um, waiting for the afterlife. There were many things which they wanted to fix. First, they wanted to improve the problems of alcoholism and unemployment. Second, they tried to mediate disputes between managers and unions. In other words, to some extent, um, I think you can find the roots of the social justice movement of the early 21st century in the social gospel movement. I don't think that would be an incorrect argument. And there is something you see in American history. Um, these themes tend to repeat themselves again and again. But in the meantime, they did much to spark the progressive reform at the turn of the 20th century. Uh, one of their most famous members, Reverend Josiah Strong, believed Protestant religious principles would help to solve the social problems that were caused by industrialization, urbanization, and immigration. Another famous member was Walter Rauschenbusch, a Baptist minister who said, Whoever uncouples the religious and the social life has not understood Jesus. Now, we spoke early in season two about the connection between religion and American exceptionalism and American imperialism. Here's another theme, the connection between American religiosity and social reform. There was a religious connection, almost a religious fervor amongst the social reformers. Besides this, a part of the social gospel movement, which uh, we should mention, and one which, uh, with which you are familiar, is the Salvation Army. Now, it did not originate in America. It came over from England in 1879. The Salvation Army was a Protestant-based service organization. It appealed to those who were stricken by poverty. Um, their most obvious way of doing this was through the soup kitchen. Now, of course, today um, we associate the Salvation Army um, with Christmas time and the red buckets and the bells and all that. Now, another way of helping the poor was the settlement house movement. This was primarily a women's movement, northern, white, middle-class, college-educated, and prosperous. You might be wondering how it is that women got involved in the social gospel movement generally, and the settlement house movement in particular. Well, teaching or volunteerism were almost the only occupations a young woman of the middle class could easily join. Remember, this was the Victorian period, and at least in America, women were prohibited from entering politics due to the Victorian ideals of the time. Now, when we talk of the Settlement House movement, uh, we must mention Jane Addams. She was part of the first generation of college-educated women. Jane believed living amongst the poor would help appeal to young educated women who needed first-hand experience with the realities of poverty in the city. She established Hull House in Chicago in 1889 along with Ellen Gates Starr. They taught immigrants English, as well as had held classes in nutrition, health, and childcare. They also organized social gatherings. Uh, this helped, at least to some extent, immigrants cope with life in an American city. 
It eventually became a model for other settlement houses in other cities. One example was Lillian Wald, who established this Henry Street settlement in New York City. So what is the importance of these houses? Well, besides helping the poor, they became centers of women's activism and social reforms. One woman I've not mentioned, but is perhaps the most important reformer, depending again on who you ask, to emerge out of the movement was Florence Kelly. She won legislation regulating the hours and working conditions for women and children. Now I would caution you to consider, why was this legislation passed? Was it due to her hard work and charisma? Her ability to convince politicians to go against their own self-interest? It could have been, and probably played a role. However, I wonder if perhaps part of the reason they passed the laws was due to the fact that factory owners, many of whom had the means to lobby Congress, and probably did so quite often, were okay with the law. It could be that hours were already starting to come down as factories became more and more productive, or should I say, the workers became more productive. Just some food for thought. Now, a third organization to emerge from the movement was the Red Cross. The American Red Cross, established in 1881 by Clara Benton, who had been a nurse in the American Civil War. And as I'm sure you are aware, the Red Cross provides disaster relief for such catastrophes as fires and floods. Finally, uh, for now at least, was the YWCA. It was founded in 1858 in London with the purpose of helping young women in urban areas. How did they help young women? The idea was to provide housing, education, and support for young women coming into the city from the countryside looking for employment. Remember, at this point, many people were leaving the countryside and moving into cities looking to find jobs in the factories. One of their achievements was when Britain raised the age of consent from 13 to 16. Okay, so finally for today, let's talk about nativism. Nativists viewed Eastern and Southern Europeans as culturally and religiously exotic, and sadly, often treated them poorly. These nativists often expressed four major concerns. First, alarm at the high birth rates that were common among people who lived a low standard of living. Secondly, they were even more alarmed at the prospect of what they called mongrelized America, with a mixture of inferior Southern European blood. Third, they hated immigrants' willingness to work for what they, the nativists, termed starvation wages. By the way, just as an aside, this is where you get the minimum wage laws. Those laws were not helped to design poor people. They were designed to keep jobs out of the hands of immigrants and African Americans and in the hands of whites. But I digress. Fourth, nativists were concerned about dangerous foreign ideas. Some examples of these dangerous foreign ideas were socialism, communism, and, God forbid, anarchism. Now, there were a number of anti-foreign organizations, but the one that I wanted to mention uh, was the American Protective Association, or the APA, formed in 1887. Now, one of the things it did was to urge people to vote against Roman Catholic candidates who were running for office. While not an organization per se, labor leaders also disliked immigrants. Why? They were often used as strike breakers. Remember, immigrant workers were usually willing to work for less as they were happy to have a job, any job really, and at the root of many of these strikes was an argument about wages. Now, on the other hand, while labor and labor leaders disliked immigrants, businesses favored them. There were two major reasons for this. First, immigrants provided cheap labor and served as scabs for strike-breaking. Secondly, the influence of big business in politics meant that Congress would not pass any significant immigration laws regarding Europeans until the 1920s. Okay, so we've discussed 
two major periods of immigration in American history. The first period was the old immigration, consisted of immigration from Britain, mostly Anglo-Saxon Protestants. This wave peaked 1820 to 1840, but about 6% of the immigrants were German. There was a small number of Irish immigrants, about 3%. The new immigration was made up of people coming from Southern and Eastern Europe between 1880 and 1925. Now, they were Catholics from Italy and Poland, as well as Hungarians, Czechs, and Slovaks from the Austro-Hungarian Empire. We also had Jews coming in from Russia and other parts of Eastern Europe. Okay, well, that's really it for this episode. I had actually planned on doing more, but I've cut quite a bit and thrown it into the next episode where it actually fit in better. So this one I thought was going to be a little long. It's actually a little bit short, but um, I'm sure you'll forgive me for the brief nature of this one. Okay, our next major episode will be the start of us actually talking about the progressives, believe it or not. It's only taken three or four months, but we are finally there. All right, we'll see you soon and have a great day. Do you like the sound of the American History Podcast? My audio production is provided by the Mad Octopus. Check them out over at madoctopusmedia.com.